turns out that well, we'll talk about it as we go along. Yeah. What, what, what should we go on with treatment-related complications? Welcome back to Brainwaves Audio, continuing medical audiocation for the neurologist and the trainee. I'm Jim Siegler. Today I've got Joseph Berger, who's one of the premier neurology physicians at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the director of the MS Division, associate editor of the Journal of Neurovirology, and he's been involved in HIV and the neurologic complications of HIV since the onset of the AIDS pandemic. So welcome, Dr. Berger. Thank you very much. So um, this is the first interview that we get to have together. Let's start by talking about HIV and its relationship to the nervous system. Uh, earlier, you told me that HIV is not a particularly neurotropic virus like herpes simplex or varicella zoster, but we do find that there's a high propensity of HIV-related complications in the nervous system. Can you tell me more about how HIV enters the nervous system or why it may or may not be a neurotropic virus? Sure. So the party line with respect to how HIV enters the nervous system is that HIV is present within monocytes. And it, it is present within monocytes and lymphocytes shortly after one's infected. Some of these monocytes actually remain resident within the brain and go on to become microglia that remain in the brain. So they're derived from peripheral monocytes. Though there is some evidence that the virus may enter the brain in the absence of being cell-associated. It's not really regarded as a neurotropic virus in the sense that the herpes virus is. This is really a virus that grows best in immune cells, in lymphocytes, and in monocytes. And in the brain, where it replicates productively, is within microglial cells. And we think that the majority of problems that occur that are directly related to HIV occur as a consequence of neurotoxic elements created by the virus itself, the TAT protein and GP120. But in addition, the virus gives rise to high levels of cytokines and chemokines that in and of themselves have a toxic effect on uh, nervous tissue elements. When you do see a patient in your clinical practice who has HIV and an HIV-related complication, how do you, you know, conceptualize these patients? So the way I look at the HIV-infected person who's presenting with neurologic disease is where in the neuraxis is it and what does it do to? Is it the HIV or is it some indirect consequence of the HIV? Firstly, my experience with HIV actually predates the, the recognition of AIDS itself. The constellation of illnesses we were seeing back then is very, very different uh, than it is today in the era of antiretroviral therapies. Nonetheless, the way it's conceptualized is not very different. To begin with, there are two types of illness, neurologic illness, that one sees in the setting of HIV. One are those that you can attribute directly to HIV, and the others are those that are the indirect consequence of the HIV infection. 
The direct effects of HIV include such things as HIV meningitis, which could be either acute or chronic. Of course, the brain is involved, and, and there's a spectrum of cognitive abnormalities that we see that go from minor cognitive deficits all the way to HIV dementia. The spinal cords involve the commonest form of HIV-related spinal cord disease we see is a form referred to as vacuolar myelopathy, and it looked virtually identical to what one sees with B12 deficiency. We see HIV-related peripheral nerve disease, and we also see HIV-related myositis and myopathy. So HIV itself causes disease of the entire noraxis, and on the other hand, we have the indirect effects, and the indirect effects are best classified into different groups. So the commonest of which are the consequence of opportunistic infections. The spectrum of infections we see are related generally to the impaired cell-mediated immunity. So common infections that one observes are such things as toxoplasma, cryptococcus, tuberculosis, JC virus infection, which leads to PML. Then you have autoimmune diseases that are triggered by HIV, illnesses like Guillain-Barre syndrome and CIDP. These are the consequences of an autoimmune uh, disease that's been triggered by the virus. HIV-associated neuropathy occurs in one of several mechanisms, a direct autoimmune phenomenon whereby HIV causes GBS, or CIDP, mononeuritis multiplex, distal sensory polyneuropathy, and an antiretroviral toxic neuropathy. You have vascular insults, uh, so the incidence of stroke, for instance, is higher. You have individuals that have complications of the therapies that we administer, drugs such as Azadothymidine or zidovidine have caused myopathy. There are the, um, the D drugs like DDC that cause peripheral neuropathy. There are also neoplasms that occur in the setting of HIV. Now, many of these neoplasms are driven by infections. So the one that we commonly see as neurologists is primary central nervous system lymphoma. In virtually every instance, of primary central nervous system lymphoma in the HIV-infected individual, you can find Epstein-Barr virus, which is not the case in people that develop primary central nervous system lymphoma in the absence of AIDS. Or a complication of the treatment from HIV. Or the complication of the treatment. Okay. So you've described the consequences of, of HIV related to weakness and numbness and these myelopathic features and neuropathic and myopathic features. Let's go back to the cognitive features really quickly. When you see somebody with HIV, whether it's acute or whether it's chronic, but more likely chronic, you'll see some cognitive decline in these patients. What type of cognitive features do you think are characteristically associated with HIV? Right. So the person with HIV dementia has what is best referred to as a subcortical dementia as opposed to a cortical dementia. Neurologic complications of HIV-1 are observed in 40 to 70 percent of patients. Opportunistic infections have been phasing out since the development of heart, but neuropathy and neurocognitive disease has been on the rise. The most significant of these are HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder, or HAND, which includes HIV-associated dementia and mild neurocognitive impairment. The slowness in their thinking, often emotionally flat, Parkinsonian manifestations, not so much the tremor as, uh, as the slowness and the stooped gait and 
their language is generally preserved. They have problems with their memory, but the memory problems are distinguishable from the memory problems we see in Alzheimer's disease. So with the Alzheimer's patient, if you ask them to go to the basement for a jar of pickles, they'll get down to the basement, forget what it is they've gone down there for, and if they call up to you and say, hey, what did I come down here for? And you say, starts with a P, that doesn't help them at all. Whereas if it's a person who has a subcortical dementia, like uh, HIV dementia, and you say, uh, starts with a P, they go, oh, yeah, 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 pickles. Maybe the HIV patients are just hungrier for pickles. And it's conceivable that it's hungrier for pickles. (laughs) Do you see this in patients who have these cognitive features who are relatively controlled on their antiretrovirals? Yes. So we do see people with cognitive problems that have well-controlled virus Generally, we don't see the advanced forms of dementia in those people. They have milder deficits. Uh, Somebody gets to the bottom of the page and go, oh, what the hell did I just read? And have to go back and start reading again. I do that that all the time. Well, we'll get you checked out. uh, Cognitive deficit. There are individuals, however, who appear to have well-controlled viral disease. And you do viral loads in their spinal fluid, And you go, wow, they have virus in their spinal fluid, but no virus in their blood. Now, how is that? And that's an entity that's been called by Justin MacArthur, I think he he coined the term, CNS viral escape. That is where the antiretroviral is able to suppress the virus in the periphery, but not able to do so in the central nervous system because it's not penetrating the blood-brain barrier well. Among the heart medications, the ones with the greatest CNS penetration include the NRTIs, Zidovudine, Stavudine, Abacavir, the NNRTI, Efavirenz, and the protease inhibitor, Indinavir. In patients who have HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders or HIV-associated dementia, are there any characteristic imaging features? Sure. Firstly, brain CT scan and MRIs may be perfectly normal. So you need to keep that in mind. But generally, we see some degree of atrophy, uh, particularly with the advanced disease. And the atrophy, interestingly enough, is more subcortical than cortical. And those white matter changes can be discrete, small lesions, could be fluffy lesions, or could be large confluent lesions. And contrast enhancement is not a feature of this disease. One of the things that you learn when you deal with HIV patients is you have to have a high index of suspicion, period. Individuals that have these opportunistic infections of the central nervous system can present in many different fashions. Uh, Very often they'll present with headache, they may present with seizures, they may present with focal deficits. So it's dependent on what the uh, organism is, where the infection is in the brain, because uh, you could be fooled. And I've certainly had patients that have presented solely with cognitive abnormalities, turned out to have cryptococcal meningitis. In the absence of headache, in the absence of fever, in the absence of neck stiffness, very often you have to resort to ancillary studies to figure it out. And HIV itself can produce its own primary headache disorder. And, and that's an important point. So it turns out that headaches in the HIV population are more common than in an age and sex match control. 
The headaches that we see are very often vascular-type headaches, migraine-type headaches. And I've often wondered whether HIV serves as a trigger for migraines. When you're testing somebody with a suspected aseptic meningitis, what types of studies do you typically send to the laboratory and what other ancillary testing is helpful in making the diagnosis? In anybody that you suspect of meningitis, the typical CSF parameters, cell count, protein, glucose, are extraordinarily helpful. The opening pressure is extraordinarily helpful as well. You don't see bacterial infections, for instance, bacterial meningitis with normal opening pressures, unless there's some problem with the technique. And very often in fungal meningitis, the opening pressures are elevated as well. And that's helpful in terms of prognosis, because one of the things that correlates with a poor prognosis is an increased opening pressure in the setting of a fungal meningitis. Cryptococcal antigen is a, is a must. Syphilis should always be considered. It's far more common in the HIV population. In those individuals, of course, uh, a, a CSF VDRL is very helpful. The RPR is almost invariably positive in their blood, but uh, it's worth getting a, a CSF VDRL. Uh, there's constellation of viral infections that we see, HSV, both 1 and 2, VZV, CMV. Each present a little differently. The presentation of the disease is different than in the immunocompetent host. So uh, an individual that has uh, an HSV meningitis, one or two, often has just a sort of smoldering illness as opposed to this florid necrotic encephalopathy that occurs or encephalitis that occurs in the setting of HSV1 in the immunocompetent individual. Uh, CMV, when we see CMV, very often affects uh, nerve roots, so people complain of radicular pain. It's often associated with myelitis, and generally when the brain's involved, there's a ventriculitis, so there's a particular pattern that one sees on the MRI. Histopathologically, HIV produces a typical viral so, uh, pattern, multinucleated giant cells, perivascular cuffing, meaning aggregation of white blood cells within the Virchow-Robin spaces, and diffuse pallor of the white matter due to widespread axon loss, which some have called pruning. In somebody who presents with seizures and you're suspecting meningitis, the first thought that comes to mind is going to be toxoplasmosis, but usually that can be difficult to d distinguish from a, you know, a primary CNS lymphoma. What is the current standard of practice in somebody who has new-onset seizures and a ring-enhancing mass-like lesion on their MRI? When you have a ring-enhancing lesion, whether they're new-onset seizures or not, in the setting of HIV infection, there are two diagnoses that come immediately to mind. One is toxoplasma, the other is primary central nervous system lymphoma. And both of them tend to occur close to the ventricles. The toxoplasma likes to grow in the area of the basal ganglia. So when you confront somebody who has a ring-enhancing lesion, generally we treat them for toxoplasma and monitor them carefully. We would expect a resolution of the lesion over the course of 10 to 14 days. And that if that doesn't occur, then the concern is that you're dealing with lymphoma. The most common reason for seizures in a patient with HIV is toxoplasmosis, followed by cryptococcal meningitis and primary CNS lymphoma. However, 50% of seizures are idiopathic in HIV patients. These idiopathic cases are more likely to develop HIV-associated dementia or will already have symptoms of cognitive decline. So PML is interesting. I wanted to spend some time talking about PML. 
when do you suspect a patient who has HIV to have conversion of their JC virus into PML, and how do you address that medically? The people that are at greatest risk for developing PML with HIV infection are the individuals whose CD4 counts are profoundly low, less than 100, less than 50. That's not to say that it doesn't occur before. You cannot predict who's going to develop PML. But by the time we're adults, 70% of us have evidence of this antibody. I'm unaware of anything that will be highly predictive of its development. And clinically, it can resemble a more rapid onset of the typical cognitive features we see in HIV, the subcortical decline or subcortical encephalopathy, but it's much more rapid. Are there any other specific types of deficits you see or other complications like seizures in these patients? Yeah, so seizures aren't particularly common. Uh, you don't tend to see things that, in, that are cortical, such as seizures or aphasias or uh, the reasons for that is because this is a white matter disease. I mean, only 5% of the HIV-associated PML had seizures. The commonest manifestations are visual loss, and that visual loss is usually quadrantinopsia or hemianopsia, and ultimately it may go on to cortical blindness. Weakness from uh, a lesion involving the internal capsule or fibers coming from the motor tract. Problems with coordination, problems with language, so they follow what's called Hickam's dictum. A man can have as many diseases as he damn well pleases. So when your patients come in with concerns for PML and you image them and their MRI is concerning and you know confirms the findings of PML, you treat them with antiretroviral therapies immediately to try to kind of quiesce that process, but that also can produce complications like iris, which you see in a quarter of patients, but only neurologic complications of iris are seen in 1% of the patients or so. How do you know that the treatment of the PML is causing resolution or is not causing like an immune reconstitution in the nervous system? Well, it's sometimes difficult to know, but uh, what one uses is the correlation between the recovery of the immune response as evidenced by an increase in the CD4 counts and a drop in the viral load. Bear in mind that iris is a generic term, the immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, and there are really two forms of iris. Uh, there's the form of virus where you don't recognize that the patient has an underlying opportunistic infection. So you don't recognize that the patient has cryptococcus or TB, and you, they're just feeling fine. And now you've got a robust immune system, and you have a robust immune response, and you go, oh, my God, i got a terrible headache. I've got neck stiffness. I've got fever, et cetera. So you've unmasked an infection that's already there. That's one form of virus, and that happens. The other form of virus is the one that we more typically think about, and that is the form where the individual has a recognized infection, and you've started them on the antiretroviral therapies for the first time, or you've altered their antiretroviral therapies to something that's more effective, and what you end up doing is creating that same response. When we see it, we generally treat them with steroids, and we generally treat them with seven to 14 days of steroids, and sometimes you have to give them another course of steroids. So we've done a good job kind of summarizing the different infectious complications and some of the malignancies that occur in the CNS. Kaposi sarcoma, to my knowledge, doesn't usually like to invade the nervous system. No, it doesn't. It, it usually manifests in the skin, can manifest in other internal organs, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's a case report somewhere. So moving on to the vascular complications of HIV, 
VZV and other viral causes of vasculitis in the nervous system notwithstanding, what kinds of stroke risk do we see in patients who have HIV? The incidence of stroke in the HIV population appears to exceed that in an age and sex match control. There are a number of studies that have looked at that, that there is an increased risk of stroke in people where there's no other risk factor other than HIV. Explaining that is, is very difficult. Now, we know that that there are certain things that will increase your risk of having stroke with HIV, VZV, syphilis. Meningovascular syphilis, by the way, is fairly common in the syphilitic individual who happens to have HIV. But there remains this unexplained group. It is unclear why it happens. We think that there may be a propensity for probably increased coagulation, but when coagulation factors have been looked at, you couldn't find very much. It remains a bit of a mystery. Is there any evidence that HIV can cause its own type of vasculopathy? Yeah, there's no question about it. There's an HIV-associated vasculitis. That's been well described. But if you do angiograms in the people that have stroke, it's, it's a very, very small number that you can attribute that uh, entity to. Kids that are infected congenitally or prenatally, prenatally can have mental retardation. We don't see that in the adult population. I mean, you become demented, but these children can actually be mentally retarded or they could be simply a bit slower and, or they may look normal. But in terms of the brain disease, it looks pretty much the same with one exception. And that is in children, you will not infrequently see basal ganglia calcification. You know, all of the infectious illnesses that you manifest as an adult with HIV are things that you acquire during the course of your life. So that if you're a young person, you don't see that constellation of opportunistic infections. And the neurologic complications that occur in the young population are much more often to be the consequence of HIV per se rather than from an opportunistic infection. Is there anything else that I should ask you about this topic before we wrap up? Well, I mean, we could spend days talking about the neurologic complications of HIV, but I think as an overview, this is as good as they'll get. That was Dr. Joseph Berger at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania taking his time to discuss HIV and its neurologic complications with us for brainwaves. Thank you, Dr. Berger. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Steve Combs. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.
hope that's what you wanted to hear. That is, yeah, I'll edit it down, you'll hear the final.